this morning, um, which I'm really grateful for because my allergies are killing me and I sound like my nose is all plugged up, so I'd rather not preach for 40 minutes uh, than with this. So. We're going to be in Ephesians 1, verses 15 uh, to 23. And uh, let me read this to us. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious greatness, of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Tony, if you come up, I'm going to pray for you. Lord, we just um, want to see our eyes open. We want to know you more. We want to be so um, caught up in understanding and believing the gospel that we do have joy. But God, we, we struggle. We struggle because we're blinded. Our eyes are closed. Our ears are, are deaf to the words of God. So please give us grace to have them open this morning. Speak through Tony. Speak your words of truth to us um, and impact our hearts. We pray that in your name. Amen. Thanks, brother. <coughs> <coughs> So um, we actually talked about the first two verses that he read last week, and it mentions Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, praying without ceasing. So he prays, and he never stops. I um, hope that you're in church, so I'm just going to assume that you would agree that maybe prayer is something important, right? Maybe I can't assume that, but we're certainly going to declare that prayer is something important. Prayer is something we should do. Um, how many of you are really good at never stopping in your prayers? Yeah, none of us. Oh, we've got one person all day long. Awesome. Um, I find it easier to pray consistently and often whenever life is going terribly. Um, whenever my son was prepping for surgery at two years old, um, I was more likely to pray because there was an urgency in my heart to pray for him. Um, for those of us who have teenagers, <laughs> maybe there's an urgency to pray for our kids. And You get the idea? If we're worried about a job, there's an urgency to pray. If we're worried about finances, there's an urgency to pray. If we're sick, there's an urgency to pray. And so maybe it's easier to pray without ceasing whenever we sense an urgency about a particular subject. And I say all this to frame the passage that we go in today because we read about Paul thinking about this church in Ephesus and he's praying without stop because he feels urgency for the Ephesian church. Um, he's praying for them constantly. But for what? For what? 
So we're going to get right into our passage here today. Starting in verse 17, we find out what Paul's praying for. It says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so he's praying to God, and he's asking God to do something. He's saying, I'm praying for you to God to do something. He's saying, God, please act. I need you to give something to these people in this church that I love. They urgently need it. Give to them because they're lacking. They need something. And, and back to verse 17, what is, it, what is it that he wants God to give the people? He says, may he give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So let's take a moment to acknowledge kind of the context here. Is, is Paul talking to a group of people that he believes are Christians or a group of people who he believes are, are just complete pagans, complete non-believers? Feel free to shout out. Yeah, these Christians, right? He's, he's talking to a church, and he actually just said in verse 15, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, therefore I pray for you. And so he's talking to Christians. He's saying these are people who already know Jesus, who already love Jesus, who already have been given the Holy Spirit, but they're lacking in something. They need something. So he's talking to Christians. Um, another bit of context we can acknowledge is that he's talking to Christians who live in the real world, right? Right? Um, so the church in Ephesus was a church that was founded in the center of a city that was dedicated to the worship of Artemis, a Greek goddess. And so they sang her praises in the streets, and at one point Paul is even driven out of the city because of how things have been shaken up, this church in town. And so these are Christians, yes, but they're Christians who live in the real world. They have to live and breathe and move in a culture that rejects them, right? So there's not a lot of encouragement in this city for them to continue walking and to continue investing themselves in the truths of God. Rather, there's a constant pressure upon them to invest themselves in the truths of Artemis or the, the values of her worshipers. Um, many of the, the people who became Christians, it talks about them burning their scrolls of magic. So they were practicers of, of mystical arts, and there was a, a pressure upon them to go back. Does that make sense? And so whenever he prays for them to have something that they're lacking... He knows that although they're Christians, although they've been given the Holy Spirit, although he has every evidence that they love Jesus and love each other, there's going to be pressure on them. And so they're in need. And so he prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom 
and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So what does he give? A spirit. So there's a question that comes up at this point. We know that Paul is praying that God would give a spirit to the Ephesian church. Um, But what is that spirit? Some will read this and say it's the Holy Spirit. It's God the Holy Spirit. that, That God would send the Holy Spirit upon the people to teach them and to help them. Um, Now, the Holy Spirit is certainly involved in this process because that's how God works in our hearts and in our lives. But um, it can't be that he would send the Holy Spirit in the same way, at least, that he does whenever people are first saved, right? We've established these are Christians. The Bible teaches us elsewhere that whenever we become Christians, that God puts the Holy Spirit in us. It's what brings us back to life. And it's the power that enables us to live as Christians. And so these are people that already have the Holy Spirit. And so this idea that God would give them the Holy Spirit, if it is the Holy Spirit here, then at the very least, it's not for the first time. You get what I'm saying? It's not like that indwelling Holy Spirit that we all have when we become Christians. And so he gives a spirit. Other people who interpret this, this is kind of the way that I lean, um, is that he... God needs to give these people, Paul is asking God to give these people a general spirit, lowercase s, of wisdom and revelation. That means like an attitude. You get what I'm saying? Um, A way of thinking, a way that your mind is formed. The idea that your heart would be filled with something. So if we talk about someone and say, oh, you know, she's got a real spirit of love about her. What do we mean by that? we mean that she is a loving person whose life just seems to overflow with a sense of love. Does that make sense? An attitude, a way of thinking, a heart that's filled. And so I would argue here that God is is to give Christians, Paul is imploring God to give them a heart that's filled, a mind that's reformed by a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And so a spirit of wisdom, what is is wisdom? Whenever we talk about someone who's wise, we're talking about not only someone who's knowledgeable, who's very smart, but someone who lives consistently in that intelligence, right? And so they can see the world, they see it accurately, and they have really good timing in how they act and how they move. So if you make wise decisions, you're taking good knowledge, merging it with good actions, And so we have him saying, give us a spirit of wisdom, not just theoretical knowledge, but of of worked out wise knowledge. A spirit of wisdom, and then also knowledge, um, specifically knowledge of him. Now, one could think that knowledge of him could also be theoretical, right? So we have the wisdom part. And then there's almost like, whenever I say I'm going to teach you about George Washington so that you have a knowledge of George Washington, what do you think? You memorize the facts, right? George Washington was so high, he was born in what year, what did he do, where did he go? Um, But whenever Paul implores for the Ephesians to know God, to have knowledge in him, it's not just a theoretical knowledge. God did this, he did this, he did this, and he did this. It's a personal knowledge, like you know a a person. 
Um, so if I know Josh, you know, Josh and I are friends, we've known each other a long time, we've talked a lot, we've gone through things together, and so by and large, because I know Josh, I have some idea of how he thinks. You know, I can think through a thing, what would Josh think about this, and I can kind of, I can kind of estimate that, and I can think about, you know, I know his passions, I know his motives, like I have a knowledge of him. And so whenever Paul is saying, I want God to give you a knowledge of him, he means that he wants the Ephesians to be so saturated with their relationship with God that they know how he thinks, that they can discern his motives, that they're close to him, that they have a relationship with him. And so he prays urgently, knowing that the, they need these things. And so how does this change come about? We're going to start reading in verse 18 now. It says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints. Looking at just the first part, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. The image here is one of living in darkness. That makes sense? Blindness. Of stumbling about in a world that's dark or dim, of stumbling over things in your path as you walk, and then your eyes being opened, light coming in. All of a sudden you can see things as they are. The things you used to stumble over are now plainly in front of you. You can walk down the hall without you know, tripping over kids' toys, right? If, you, if the kids that have walked out in the middle of the night. The image is of a world of darkness suddenly becoming enlightened. And because it's the eyes of the heart, we have this idea that, you know, we get these things through a spiritual light. Does that make sense? The world is full of darkness, spiritual darkness, and that makes spiritual things very hard to see. I mean, watch the news, right? And you see all the just chaos and all the awful things. And it's hard to look at that and sense any amount of like spiritual anything. It's just darkness. It can be hard to see. I'm going to read a passage out of 2 Corinthians. It'll appear on the screen here. And here we have a picture of the enlightening effect. And there's this, there's this idea that Paul's been preaching the gospel. And that some hear it and and just think it's foolishness. It's foolishness. And so Paul's responding to that. And he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. So literally think of a bride's veil, or a, a mourner's veil in older times, whenever there'd be sheer fabric, but darkened fabric, that's hard to see through, especially things that are farther out. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, hard to see, it's only veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, verse 4, the God of this world, that is 
Satan, the enemy, the one who drives people towards unbelief. It says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So do you see this again? There's this idea that the world is full of spiritual darkness, but God has the power to say, let there be light. In the same way he spoke light into existence, physical light into existence in the beginning, he has the power to say, let there be spiritual light in the hearts of those who love me. And so the world is full of darkness. It's hard for us to have a spirit of wisdom or of knowledge of God because of that darkness. But God can open our eyes. And so Paul prays. These are people that already have had their eyes open to some degree. They already love Jesus. They already love each other. But Paul prays to God, Lord, enlighten the eyes of their heart. Open their eyes afresh. Help them see more clearly the truths maybe they already know to a certain extent. Friends, this is, this is the main point of this passage here, is they needed their eyes open to spiritual realities, and we need our eyes open to spiritual realities. Even if we say we know Jesus, and even if we really do, it is still so easy for our eyes to be darkened and for us not to see who he is and what he is and what our relationship is to him. We need, we need urgently to have our eyes open to spiritual realities. So there are three specific things that we need our eyes open to. This is straight out of the passage. He says they need to have their eyes opened and they need to have their eyes opened to these things. And I want to take a moment here to acknowledge that I'm about to tell you what those things are. And the Ephesians probably already knew these things. But Paul is praying again, let your eyes be opened. So as we hear these things, like pray that our eyes would be opened even now. That we would see these things in a fresh light. These are three things that our eyes need to be open to. Verse 18, I'm just going to read the first part. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Often, whenever we talk about hope today, we do so in the sense that I am hopeful that something will happen. Did you catch, did you catch the difference there? So, I want to have a raise at my job, and I hope that that will happen. I don't know that it'll happen, but I certainly hope it does, right? That's the way we often use the word hope. That is not what we're talking about here. Whenever it says the hope to which you have been called, it's talking about the, the object or the end to which Christians become Christians for, right? You don't start following Jesus 
because you wishfully think, hope, that good things will come of it. No, there is an image of actual reality that is preached in the gospel that people are called to in the gospel. So we preach that Jesus is Lord, that you're a sinner and you deserve nothing but judgment from God, but God in his mercy sent Christ to die on your behalf so that you could have life in Christ and no longer be under judgment, to not have to stand before God someday as a sinner just in fear of what he's going to do. And so whenever we see the hope of the gospel, a huge part of that hope is what? Just that someday, whenever we stand before the judgment seat of God, that we won't hear destruction on us. And the other part of hope is that what God is doing in the world is not just about us, right? It's not just about me individually, what's going to happen at the end for me. It's about what's at the end for everything. What's at the end for everything? And so we're called to know and to think about and to have and to see a hope, and that's a hope of everything reconciled. Um, This won't be on the screen, but I want to read to you um, from just a verse earlier in Ephesians. This is uh, verse 10. We actually read this a while back. And it talks about God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so the image is of our hope, of heaven, all the glorious things that God's a part of, meeting earth where most reject him, and reality being changed. And in the center is Jesus a new heaven, a new earth, perfection. And so we have to see the hope to which we're called. We need to be able to see past the muck and the mire and the, the, the evil stuff today towards what the world will, will become. If we don't, our worldview becomes skewed if we can't see the end, that hope to which we're called, we'll become so discouraged by what's immediately around us that we won't live in a way that acknowledges God is at work at all. We have to have our eyes open to that hope, that beautiful hope where sicknesses are gone and there's no more war and there's no more evil. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to know about is also in verse 18, the next part. So he wants us to know the hope to which he has called us, and then also what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is another verse um, that can be difficult to parse. We've been speaking about inheritance earlier in the book of Ephesians, but the receiver of the inheritance has always been us. So Paul talks about your inheritance. Um, That inheritance being, you know, God and his power and his fullness and the kingdom. Now we just talked about the hope, which wraps up much of that stuff. And I want us to notice 
that in this passage, whenever it says the inheritance, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the owner of this particular inheritance in this verse grammatically is God. And that may seem kind of confusing to us. Um, one of the reasons that might be is because we don't, we don't carry all the biblical knowledge in the world with us all the time. Um, but if you go through the Old Testament, time and time and time again, the people of God, so in this sense the saints, um, in the Old Testament it would have been Israel, the people of God are, talk, are talked of as being God's inheritance or his possession. In this sense, the word, the Greek word that's behind this can mean just kind of a possession, not necessarily like somebody dies and God gets us, you know, in, in the process. Um, and so there's this idea that we are God's possession. And that is a truth that we need to grasp in a real way. You get what I'm saying? It's not, it's not that our relationship from God is distant. It's not that the church is over here and God sometimes likes it, sometimes doesn't like it. The picture here is of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so whenever God looks at the church, whenever he looks at us as individuals, he doesn't look at us with a scowl. Right? So whenever uh, I misbehave and my mom caught me misbehaving, I would get a scowl, right? I scowl probably far too often at my own children. Like, and I'm going to be completely real with you right now. Whenever I think about God looking at me and looking at the church, like I don't generally think of, oh, the glorious richness, right? Because I know what's in me. I know what my sins are. And yet here's the truth that we need to know, that we urgently need to know, is that whenever he looks at us, he sees glory and richness. How is that possible? It's only possible through Jesus. We talked about the gospel before, that he saves us from our sins. The reason that God can look at us and see something beautiful and see something that he loves is only because of what Christ has done to take our sin away. There's another image in the Bible, and I'm not going to read the passage because we're running short on time, but um, where the church is called the bride, the bride of Christ. Um, that Christ has washed, that Christ has cleaned, that Christ has prepared to present to God. Um, so what's the stereotypical image of a bride in our culture? It's a beautiful woman in just a fantastic, flowing, you know, beaming white gown, perfectly prepared and pampered and presented as beautiful and literally shining because the sparkles on the dress. When God looks at us, he sees that. Beautiful and washed and clean. And it's something that we have to know. 
It's something that has to be on our mind. It's something as we think about God and as we approach him has to be foundational to who we are. Because if it's not, if God is always the big angry man scowling in the sky at those of us in his church, how are we ever going to want to talk to him? How are we ever going to want to pursue him? He wants us to have relationship. That's what that knowledge part is. How can we have a close personal relationship with him if we always think he's, if we always think he's angry at us? And how can we ever tell other people about God as if he's a good, wonderful God if our attitude is constantly that he's angry? We can't. And so that second truth that we need to know is about the richness of the glorious inheritance of the saints, the beauty of his people, the church, that God loves us and sees us as beautiful. There's one more thing that he wants us to know, and this is where we'll spend pretty much the rest of our time. Starts in verse 9, 19. And what is, he wants us to know, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. So the last thing that we need to understand is we need to understand God's power. God is powerful. And until we understand the, the magnitude and the scope and the direction of his power, we're going to be gripped by fear and anxiety for our whole life. Um, anybody nervous? Don't, you don't have to say the direction. Anybody nervous about our country? Like in the political direction and the candidates we have to choose from and, and just the upheaval, right? Now, people in this room have different opinions on politics. I know because I've talked to, talked to you, so I know that we disagree in, in some areas. But what we, most of us hold in common is that there's a certain amount of fear, right? We don't know what's going to happen, and that's scary. We don't know what the world's going to be in 50 years, and that's scary. You watch the news, and you hear about groups like ISIS that has displaced millions of Syrians through their violence. And I look at the world 50 years from now and I wonder, what is it going to be? And unless we can grasp God's power, the fear and the anxiety that comes that come from the things that we see, is just it's going to grip us. And it's going to change the way we see the world, and it's going to change the way we treat one another, and it's going to change the way we act. The practical implications of living out of fear and anxiety are nearly endless. And so Paul prays for the Ephesians, and he prays that God would open their eyes so that they would see and understand God's power. First off, that they would know the magnitude of his power. Again, back to verse 19. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might. Um, if you have a different translation, the end there might talk about the strength of his might. Paul runs out of words. He runs out of synonyms for power to use. He says, I want you to know the immeasurably strong, mighty power of God. He, he uses words over and over to emphasize we're not talking about, you know, a little shock, a little bit of power. We're talking about immeasurably huge power. God is powerful. And he demonstrates the magnitude of that power in verse 20. It says that it's his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so we see the, the magnitude of his strength by the fact that he raised Christ from the dead. We've heard that tons of times. If we, if we go to church and if we're used to the Christian message, we hear, okay, Christ rose from the dead. But think about that for a moment. Christ hung on a cross he bled out, his body was bruised, having been whipped, and he was cold and dead and wrapped in a tight-fitting linen and laid in a tomb. He was dead. The Roman centurions stuck him with a spear just to make sure. There was no coming back from that. And God, through his mighty power, breathed life back in. And so Jesus, cold and dead, having hung on the cross, breathed again. And life filled his body again. And, and 1 Corinthians teach us, teaches us that his body in the process was changed. That the flesh at that time that aged and was susceptible to the elements and susceptible to pain, was shifted and became incorruptible. Flesh that literally would never get weak, would never wear out, would never rot. Christ was raised from the dead. There are few things that I fear more than death. Very few things, and um, and I think about it, frankly. Like I'm, you know, I was diagnosed with diabetes a few years ago. Poor choices on my, you know, my part, lifestyle choices. And I think about my family members who have died from complications with diabetes, and like that frightens me. Like I'm scared about my body breaking down and and what's going to happen there, and it and so I, it frightens me. And many of you have had medical problems of various kinds. And so you've thought about that. And those of you who are perfectly healthy, I almost guarantee you've got loved ones who weren't. And you watched it. And the truth is, is that corruption is creeping towards each one of us. I may corrupt quicker than you because of my disease, but you will corrupt. And God's power is able to raise the dead, starting with Jesus. So that's its magnitude. What about its scope? We see that also in verse 20. Not only did he raise Jesus from the dead, but he also seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, this is in verse 21, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So what's the scope of his power? So God exerts his power, and he lifts Jesus up as powerful, and Jesus has power over everything, over absolutely everything, above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There are are connotations in that phrase, phrase of both worldly power, that is kings and princes and generals and armies, but it also has connotations of spiritual power, so that the Ephesians who believed in demons and worshipped them, who believed that Artemis was powerful, Paul says, no, Jesus' name is above every name. There's this concept that names have power. We see this throughout the New Testament. People cast out demons in the names of their deities, or they attempt to. And even among the Christians who cast out demons, they say, get out in the name of Jesus, right? Believing the name has power. That was also common in the rest of the world spiritually at the time. The, the idea if you could know a, a spirit's name, that you could have control over it, or that you could wield some power over it. And Jesus' name has spiritual power above any other. Today we might not talk about using names in a spiritual sense, um, but we certainly are comfortable with talking about how names have psychological power, right? So we buy the brands that we buy because that name is powerful psychologically. Like Trump doesn't put his name in golden letters on top of his hotels because um, he just likes the sound of it. Right? That brand, he believes, and many people believe, has power. Right? You can see it through American history. Um, if you're born with a certain kind of last name, there's a higher likelihood. Roosevelt, higher likelihood you'll be elected president. Right? Names have power. And Christ's rule and the power of his name is more powerful than any other. There's no name that we can call out to, to the right or to the left, up or down, that's more powerful than the name of Christ. That's the scope of his power. Now, where is his power directed? Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So God's power is wielded towards the world that he created in a couple of different ways. To those who are not his own, to those who don't believe or love him, his power towards them is one of subjection. He put them under his feet, right? But his power towards those who love him is different. We know that Primarily, Paul wants us to know about the power of Christ here directed towards us. And we know that because of what it said in verse 19, his his immeasurable greatness of power towards us. And we see it again here in verse 22 and 23. 
He's head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if the world, the unbelieving world, is Christ's footstool, the thing that is under his feet, where do we stand in the picture? It speaks of him as being our head, and it speaks of us as being his body. God has done many mighty things in the past, and he's doing many mighty things now, and he's going to do many mighty things in the future, but his power towards us is wielded differently than most of those acts. His power is unimaginable, and he's pouring that into us as he unites us to him and as he unites us to one another as a church. So the focus of his power in our life is one of filling us and building us up and sanctifying us and making us better and changing us. And so if we stand before God in fear of his power, in fear of what the world would become, we need only remember that God is immeasurably powerful And as far as we're concerned, his main focus of that power right now is to pour it upon us to change us and to sanctify us. Christ is cleaning us, and God's power is behind that. It's directed for our good. We need to open our eyes. We need to have our eyes opened and see God's power in us. If we don't, we'll live in fear and we'll miss the work that he's actually accomplishing. We'll have nothing to celebrate. So let's close out with just a moment of application. Just a moment of application. Um, What can we do? You know, I struggled in thinking about, you know, how do I say, okay, therefore, go and do this. Because really, the passage is all about how God has to do something in us. Paul doesn't tell the Ephesians, hey, just remember this. He says, no, I'm praying that God would enlighten you. And so we really need to be enlightened. That's the main point, right? We need to have our eyes opened by God to be able to see spiritual realities. So what can we do? Um, We may not be able to manufacture that. We can't open our own eyes. Um, But we we can certainly put ourselves in a position to see the truths more often. So just a few practical things we can do. Um, The first, we can join our prayers to Paul's. As we read that passage and we see Paul praying for the Ephesians, we can say, Lord, I need it too. And we can spend time going to him and confessing where we fall short. We can say, Lord, I have a really hard time seeing the hope clearly. And I don't really value the church or myself. And I have a really hard time recognizing your power. I need that to change. So on a practical level, we can spend time praying for ourselves along with Paul. We can also pray for others because we all need it. We're a family, a church family. And so when one person is sick, the whole family's sick, right? And so we pray for that person. And we pray specifically for those things that we need, those three things. So we can pray. The second thing that we can do is we can seek out opportunities to immerse ourselves in the truth, right? 
if these things are true and they're life-giving and life-changing, then we should seek out opportunities to be reminded. Um, We can do that by reading scripture. I mean, you've heard that a million times, right? Read your Bible, (laughs) do it. Um, We can do that as a body in our fight clubs, you know, as we meet one-on-one or or one-on-two to to work through our issues. Um, We can do that in MC, our missional communities, as we sit and study the Bible and talk about mission. We can encourage one another in those things. Um, And then on the Sunday gathering, we can listen to the sermons that are preached by whoever's here. They're preaching God's word. They're preaching his truth. And we can choose to pay attention. And the third thing that we can do um, is we can try to unplug from distractions. So we put ourselves in place where we have opportunity to hear the truth. And we can also, on the other side, unplug from the distractions. What is it like in your life that fights against the hope that you have? You know, what is it that you're being exposed to constantly that distracts you from the reality of the hope? What goes against your sense of value? Like, do you flip through Facebook and see how awesome everybody else is and you think, man, I'm a, I'm a schlub and, and it depresses you and doesn't help you at all, right? All it does is hurt you? Maybe unplug. What powers and names seem so large to you? Is it a family member who that you think, I don't ever want to go against them or what they would say or think? Is it a boss or political party member? What names and powers loom large over you? I'm not saying unplug from your life. I'm not saying, you know, move off to a cloister but really seriously consider taking some time away from the things that distract you and spending that time asking the Lord to help you to see the real spiritual realities. There's some things we can do. Um, Every day we walk around in a world that makes demands of us. It calls us to believe certain things, to do certain things, to have certain opinions, um, to have our worldview shaped the way we see the world to have our spirit and our attitudes shaped um, by a million different agendas. Um, I'm just praying that our hearts wouldn't be shaped by those things, but would be shaped by the real truths, the truths that we have in Christ. So you pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we want to thank you so much for your care.